this, uh, this study. Um, it's been an interesting one, to say the least, I think. <clears throat> just a little recap. I know a lot of you have been here for most of this study, but if you're just tuning in. Uh, Paul, he wrote this letter to his protege, uh, Timothy, who was a younger um, pastor um, who Paul had sent to bring order to the churches in the region of Ephesus. And there's been a uh, definite theme throughout this book. Uh, and we called the series uh, uh, Leadership 101 because there's, there's tons of leadership principles we can take uh, from this letter. But there's been definitely been a theme. The first chapter we, we saw was basically about the church and its message. You know, make sure that this is what's being taught. And then chapter 2 and 3 was about the church and its members. Right? They focus what they should be doing. They should be focused on prayer and not be uh, you know, distracted in, in, in futile discussions like RJ was talking about. Uh, that they should be submissive and, and hu- uh, have humility and, and not be, you know, trying to figure out who was most important and all of that. And in chapter 4, we talked about the church's ministers, what they should, you know, what that should look like, what are their qualifications. Uh, chapter 5, I'm just realizing this is uh, an alliteration. I did not mean for everything to start with an M. Now I'm under pressure. i got to make sure the rest of it starts with an M. Uh, so he talked about what what the you know the pastors uh, should look like. You know what uh, what what are their qualifications? How should they live? And what's their family life? And, uh, and then chapter five, he talked about the ministry of the of uh, the church within the church. Right? How do we deal with um, widows and orphans and uh, people you know people that are in need in our congregation? How do we deal with that? How do do we pay our pastor? How do we do that? Um, and then we started chapter 6, I think it was last week, right? uh, and he talked about the church's ministry and mission to the world. You know, how, how, how does the church look when it leaves these walls? Uh, and so, specifically, he talked about you know how servants and, or employees, is how we would talk about it, how servants should interact with their master or their employer. That... As a, if you're a Christian, we should be known for um, for working hard, for being respectful, for not being the one that stirs the pot all the time and causes all the trouble and the drama. We should honor authority. We should uh, not be the one that sprints to the door, you know, when the when the buzzer rings or whatever. Like uh, we should be some of the last ones there at the end of the day. You know, go. Literally, go the extra mile. You know where that expression comes from? That's Jesus talking about how a Christian should, <laughs> should act, right? We should go the extra mile. Um, and he talks about how, you know, go make a living, but don't develop a love for money. It's a snare. And he talked a lot about contentment. Contentment is the goal. Um, and so now we're, get, we're getting into his closing instructions, his last words to Timothy in this letter. Uh, we're actually going to start 2 Timothy next week. Um, but uh, 
his closing instructions to Timothy are, are almost all action words. He's like, I told you all these things of how things should look. But here's what I want you to do. And your faith should have feet. It should go and do some things. And here's what I want you to do. We're going to talk about that. But um, let's go ahead and pray and we'll get into it. Well, we thank you again for giving us another opportunity to, to study your word and uh, that we get to uh, we get to see new people developing their, their talents and, and using them for you. Uh, it's such a blessing. Lord, we just pray tonight, though, that you would help us to focus on the message, on the truth of your word. We're midway through the week, and we've all been probably kicked around and beat up a little bit in one way or another. Uh, Lord, we just want to spend this these next few minutes communing with you, learning about you, learning about who we are in you, and leaving here closer to you than when we arrive. So we pray for that. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so First Timothy 6, verse 11. And if you're a note taker, uh, I'm, I'm one of those nerds. I still have an analog Bible, you know, from pieces of tree held together by parts of a cow, you know what I'm talking about? Um, but if not, uh, either way, there are some action words that you can highlight or underline here. First Timothy 6, verse 11, he says, but flee from these things. Remember, he's, the verses prior to this, he was talking about the love of money, you know, people get trapped by that, people... Uh, you know, live in discontent when they shouldn't, and you know they, they get their priorities out of whack. But you flee from the uh, flee from these things, you man of God. Which that alone, that when he calls Timothy that, you man of God, that's a title that's not thrown around uh, thrown around lightly in the Bible. It's only used for about a few people. Um, he says, flee from these things. There are things that we need to just run from. Especially as Americans, uh, we like to think a little more highly of ourselves than probably we ought, you know. Because we're the country that we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and you know, we're self-made and you can do anything that you put your mind to and all of that stuff. And, and I don't mean you should have terrible self-esteem or anything like that. Uh, but when it comes to sin... When it comes to temptation, very often there are things that we're like, well, I'm strong enough to handle that. I'm mature enough to handle that. And maybe we ought to just say, I'm going to flee from that. Because maybe I'm not strong enough. Maybe it's going to catch me on the wrong day. And, you know, the, the, the example I always go to for this is Joseph. Back in the Old Testament, he's in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife keeps making advances on him. And finally, uh, she just, you know, grabs him. And he's a young man, and you know, full of hormones, and, and he knew himself. And he knew his only uh, recourse was either to sin with Potiphar's wife, or to, it says he literally ran. He ran out of his shirt as she held on to it. He just, you know, he... Uh, he, he ran from that temptation because he knew he would succumb to it. And so there probably are things in our lives that we should flee from. I don't know what 
what it is for you. I know a couple things for me, and, and God keeps showing me new ones. So flee from these things, you man of God, and then pursue, there's another action word, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. All of those things, yes, they, they're fruit of the Spirit, but they're not just automatic things. Right? For many of us, we think, well, I became a Christian, so I should never be tempted, and I should just, I'm holy now. Right? And then you live a little bit, and you're like, wait a minute, I have moments where I feel unholy. You're right, because you still have flesh, right? So you, it's, uh, you have to pursue those things. Right? So seek, the Holy Spirit will, will help encourage you and enable you, but you still need to pursue Him and pursue uh, righteousness and godliness and faith and all of those things. You have to make it a goal. So he says, flee from these things, pursue those things. Have a, have a goal, have something on the horizon that you're running toward. So you run away from the love of money and you run toward righteousness. So on. Verse 12. To fight the good fight of faith. There's another action word, right? another verb. Fight the good fight of faith. That word there, it's uh, agon. Uh, I can never pronounce this right. Agonizomai, something like that. But it's where we get the word agonize. Right? Uh, and it's the word that they would uh, use for wrestlers at the Olympics. They was to compete with an adversary. And, you know, you really struggle and you strain to do this thing. Fight the good fight of faith. Faith is an interesting thing, right? We are saved by grace through faith. God made, he, he set out a plan that was as simple as could be for us because he knew we would mess it up otherwise. That if we just simply trust Jesus for eternal life, we have it. That's faith. But living out your faith can be agonizing. can be a struggle. It's something you have to, you know, the, the becoming a Christian is easy. Living as a Christian ought to can be a fight. It's something that you have to, you're going to be competing with an adversary. Right? That, uh, that agonized word again. He used the same word a, a couple other places. Paul, Paul was fond of this word. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Every, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but, in, uh, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Because I fight with myself. I fight with my flesh. Uh, I'm not just punching aimlessly. I have a goal. And I'm, and I'm, I'm, you know, battling with myself, with the adversary, with a, for reasons, right, for a good reason. 
I wrote a song years ago uh, called Dealing with the Devil that talks about this very thing, that that is, uh, uh, that is the battle that every Christian will fight, right? is that you will deal with the devil until you're dying dead. I wish it were different. I wish it were, I trust Jesus, and now, like I said earlier, I'm holy, and I never am tempted, and I will never do anything wrong, and I just kind of float around until he takes me to heaven. Uh, but, you know, one bad trip through the McDonald's drive-thru, and I'm, it's revealed to me that, you know, maybe, maybe I've still got some problems with my flesh. He used this word another place. Uh, he actually used it a few different spots, but in 2 Timothy, the letter we're going to be going into soon, uh, chapter 4, this is Paul at the end of his life. He's been fighting this fight. He's been dealing with the devil uh, for years. And at the end of his life, he says this. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have agonized. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He says this is something that God has in store for all of those who are looking forward to his appearing, all of those who fight the good fight. There is some special reward, uh, you know, the, the crown of righteousness, whatever that looks like. It's something we have to look forward to. Anyway, let's go back to 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. Uh, it says, fight the good fight of faith. Here's another action word. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Uh, you could translate that, um, own it. Right? Take possession of your eternal life. There are many people who have put their faith in Jesus. They have eternal life. And then they're kind of aimless after that. They don't really have their ministry. They're not really sure what they're supposed to do next, but I'm saved. And that's still better than not being saved. You know, <laughs> but he, he says, "Look, don't just be saved and wait to go to heaven. Own it. Right? You're a child of the King. Live like one. Uh, find what it is that He has for you to do. You're saved. Now what? So take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses." What's the good confession? It's whatever you have, what it is you have to say about Jesus. That's your good confession. In Matthew 10, 30 or 32, somewhere in there, Jesus says, Whoever confesses me before men, I will, con- I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven, right? Like, what you have to say about who Jesus is really matters. Then he uses this word again in verse 13. He says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, 
who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. So what did Jesus ever confess to? It's a weird one, right? Because when we think of confession, right, when you go, you get hauled into the police and they put you like a lamp over you and, you know, good cop, bad cop, and they try to beat out a confession out of you, right? That means you, you admit to something. Right? You got me, copper, or whatever. That's not what the word actually means. A confession, the word confess, means to be in agreement, to agree with. And so in 1 John, when he says, when we confess our sins, he's right, you know, faithful and righteous to forgive us of all our sins. Um, we, we're not saying, okay, God, you didn't know about this one thing, but here's what I did. Right? He knows. He already knows. You can't, you can't, it's like little kids with chocolate all, all over their face going, I did eat the cookie. Yeah, we, he knows. But the confession is, God, now I agree, I agree with you. I see this for, I see this for what it is. I see it the way you see it. Paul says that Jesus, at some point, with Pilate, made a good confession. So Matthew 27, verse 11, let's take a look at this. It says, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. In other words, I confess. I agree with you. I am the king of the Jews. 1 Timothy 6, verse 14. I could go on and on about that, but uh, it's Wednesday night. We don't want to keep it here too long. Verse 14, it says uh, that you keep the commandment, or the, uh, you know, the, the orders in this letter, right? Paul has given him a bunch of commandments. Here's how the church should work, and here's how we deal with orphans, and here's how we deal with, deal with widows, and all of that. You keep this, you know, keep this commandment. Um without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's another action word in that verse. Right? That you, what? Keep this commandment. That you hold on to. That's another way we can translate that word. Hold on to what you've been given. You've learned some things. Hold on to them. I remember one time I was, uh, sometimes when I'm preparing for a message, I'll, I'll print off like some notes from different commentaries, and, you know, another preacher I like has preached on this text, I'll print off some stuff from him, and I'll just kind of, I'll read through it, and I'll highlight stuff that I'm like, oh, that's a good point, and here's a, you know, I'll have to look that reference up. And I got into one section one time where I was like, man, I, yeah, that's really good, I like that, and I didn't know that. I'm, I'm like highlighting everything on this page. And I realized it was one of my own old sermon outlines. I'm like, wow, I really like that guy, you know. Uh, <laughs> but what was really great, though, is there was one section where I'm like, huh, I didn't know that. And then I realized it was my own outline. Apparently, I had known that at some point, but I didn't hold on to that. Telling on myself. So hold on to what you've learned, right? Like, don't let that stuff just go in one ear and out the other. And then he says, you know, without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Serve Jesus 
until you see him face to face, whether it's in heaven or you know when we're raptured or whatever it is, until you see him face to face. Verse 15, which he will bring about at the proper time. Right? You'll see Jesus when it's the right time for you to see Jesus. He who is uh, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable life. That whole section there, he's using, these are some of the titles that were used for some of the Roman um, rulers and, and emperors. You know, they like to fancy themselves as being gods. And, and Ephesus is one of the Roman colonies. And he says, no. There is one blessed and only sovereign. There is one King of kings and Lord of lords who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable life, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So basically he says, remember who it is that we're talking about. Remember who it is we serve. When we go out and do our ministry, however that may look, remember who you're doing it for. This this one that we serve, he dwells in unapproachable light. Light that shines right through you and exposes every hidden thing. This one that we do all these things for isn't impressed when we do them to be seen. He knows our motives. Verse 17, you get another action word here. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So instruct those who are rich. As a little thought experiment, I've done this many times over the years. I've asked people of different income levels if they thought they... You know, do you think you are rich? And I've never found a single person who thought they were rich. And some of them I would consider rich. Nobody thinks they're rich. Everyone thinks rich is someone who has more than whatever I have. And, you know, we, we have all those statistics that make all of us Western... Uh, American people, you know, get, feel guilty, right? Like, everyone in America is richer than almost everybody else on earth and all that. But but here's the thing. is When I was 10-year-old me would think I am rich because I could buy any G.I. Joe that I want, right? Nobody can tell me when to go to bed, and I can go to McDonald's three times a day if I want to. The reality is, right, everyone is rich to someone else, so... Uh, instruct those who are rich. You you are all rich folks, whether you feel like it or not. So all of you rich, rich Americans, in this present world, don't be conceited or fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things. So the point is, right, like don't expect wealth to solve your problems. Because I've asked that question to many people. Do you think you're rich? And, you know, sometimes you'll get the spiritual sounding, well, I'm rich in Christ. Well, okay. That's not what I meant. 
all those people, though, think that if they had a little bit more money, it would solve their problems. And I would certainly love to test that theory, like, you know, I would, I'd love to have more money and see if it does solve my problems, but I venture to say that it doesn't solve all of your problems. There's a reason that, the, that Jesus said, and the Bible says, that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven uh, than to get a camel through the eye of a needle. It's uh, when we fix our hope and our contentment and our dreams on something material and disposable, we're setting ourselves up for failure. Riches are uncertain, right? That's what he calls it. Don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Anyone who has money in the stock market knows that it's uncertain. Right? Your 401k may have a totally different value tomorrow than it had today. Verse 18. Says, instruct, there's another action word, instruct them to do good. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And that may sound familiar to you. Paul is basically paraphrasing what Jesus had to say in Matthew 6, where he said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's an unfortunate reality. And, and every statistical study will bear this out. It's an unfortunate reality that the richer a person gets, the stingier they get. Uh, the percentage of giving to income is directly inverse to the level of income. So in other words, poor people give a higher percentage of their income than rich people. So it may look bigger because the rich guy gave a number with more zeros, but it was a smaller percentage of what it is he had. Look, if you've been blessed financially, give it away. Not all of it. There's a reason God chose you to have that. But remember that God always uh, will always choose to put more into an open hand than He will into a clenched. Because you've been faithful in these few things, I'm going to give you more. But if you're stingy and you hold on to it and, and cling to it, and this is mine because I earned it, that's all you're going to have. Look, we talked earlier in this book about um, this concept that we are to love people and use money and never get them reversed. First Timothy 6, verse 5. 
I've got all serious dramatic there for a second. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. And this word here, you could translate this as deposited. Guard what has been entrusted to you, what has been deposited with you, right? You're, it's, it's with you to hold the safe keeping. Guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. A deposit is supposed to be returned to the depositor at some point, um, untainted in its entirety. Now, if you're a renter, you know that's never how it works. Right? But but that's the idea, right? If I deposit money in the bank, I should be able to go back to the bank at some point and take out that, that money because they held it safely for me. And God has deposited things into your life things that he has entrusted you with. And your job is to, to guard them, to, to be a good steward with them, and hand them back to him. If you've been given children, you've been entrusted with this thing that you're to steward and you're to watch over and don't tear it down and break it down and, and, and take, you know, take things from it. You, you help, if anything, you build it up and and, you know, increase it and you hand it, you give it back to God. At some point, that child is going to leave your home and, and they're out of your control and you've done whatever you can do with them. And so he tells Timothy, there are things that you've been entrusted with. Make sure you take them. He talks about the empty chatter and opposing arguments which are falsely called knowledge. So there's these empty words and empty arguments. Proverbs says that uh, where there are many words, sin abounds. The more you talk, the more likely trouble is going to happen. But he, he talks about this, this thing, these things that are called falsely called knowledge. In verse 21, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. The word he uses there for knowledge is, is uh, gnosis. It's where we, uh, we get Gnosticism, uh, or at least the, the root of that word. And at that time, Gnosticism was beginning to raise its ugly head in the early church. And Gnosticism claimed to have this special secret knowledge. And if you pay me, I'll give you a little insight into the special secret knowledge. Um, Paul says, look, seeking that secret stuff, reading between the lines, all of that, that can lead you astray from the simple gospel message of faith that was deposited with you. You know what's between the lines in your Bible? Empty faith. Right? Like learn, learn to understand what's on the line before you worry about what's in between the lines. So I'm running a little bit long tonight, but... Uh, I, you know, we, we've got to sum up this this letter is somehow, right? This is I've, I've tried to every time we preach in this book to talk about there's some leadership principle that we can take into our jobs, into our homes, into our daily lives. So here's what I think overall for this letter and also for tonight's message is there's a few things. Living out your faith does take effort. You need to pursue it. And so that means you need to set goals in your 
job and at home. You need to have goals, things that you're striving for. If you just go on autopilot, guess what will happen? You'll just be on autopilot and nothing will get better. Nothing will change. Don't think that uncertain things can give you peace. Um, very often, we, pe- we make the mistake of thinking that we can spend our way out of a problem. We've seen that in the workplace and at home. And that's just not the case. You don't. It, the problem isn't you need to spend more money. You don't, you know, you need to have goals and don't depend on un- uncertainty. And, pe- you know, people don't leave their job for more money, believe it or not. Occasionally that happens, but most people don't, do not leave their job for more money. They leave their job because they're unhappy. They leave their job because they feel like they're not growing or they're, you know, being boarded over or whatever. It's very rarely 